I love a parade. Last summer, I got to go to the Apex 4th of July bicycle parade where all the kids decorated everything. And I was with my little grandsons and said, pretty soon we're gonna do that to your bikes and be in that parade ourselves. And that will be fun. I'm looking forward to that. And every year I look forward to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I wanna be in my place when it starts. I wanna watch it live. My family knows, be ready and don't miss it. I wanna have them involved in it too. Some parades are exciting and happy and others are a celebration to honor the service of heroes. And there may be solemn parades as well, but I wanna focus on the best parade of all today. The one that we get to join and this has been made possible by Jesus's victory. Jesus and the disciples did have a few of what I'll call parades as Jesus went through his ministry. Some of them were happy, but not all of them were. The first one that I see recorded is in Matthew 4, 24 and 25. Crowds followed Jesus when they heard about his healing power. The crowds were ill with various diseases and pains. There were demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Think of the parade of people that came to him. And then verse 25 says, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So they heard about him and they were following him. Crowds joined the disciples and shouted Hosanna when Jesus entered Jerusalem. This is a great parade. And then the next one is not great. The temple guards paraded Jesus through Jerusalem through the middle of the night and they arrested him and continued to parade him from one place to another as they gave these mock trials to find him guilty. We'll learn more about that in our study next semester in Luke 22 through 24. Pilate's soldiers led Jesus on the somber, heartbreaking parade to his crucifixion. It might have looked like there would be no more parade after that, but... Jesus knew the rest of the story. And he told his disciples before that, he told them to get ready to join his victory parade. He did it in the conclusion to his message. John 16, 33. I hope you are beginning to be so familiar with this verse. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer I have overcome the world. Jesus was not expressing wishful thinking when he said that. He was not trying to give a pep talk to a group of deadbeats. He was not a motivational speaker trying to inspire these guys to follow their dreams and get on the bandwagon with him. Jesus knew this statement was a declaration of certainty. He was about to bring victory. Now we're going to go back to Jesus' opening statement and consider it with his clothing, closing statement. And we'll get a review of his whole message, these three chapters that we've studied. Jesus began with a clear declaration of his identity and purpose when he said, 
in John 13, 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. I want to focus on what he called himself, the Son of Man. That's the title that Jesus used most often for himself. It's a messianic title. It is referring to him as the Messiah. And that means the chosen one, the anointed one. The Messiah was the one that all Israel was waiting for. The Messiah was the one that all Israel was expecting to deliver them from Rome, to overcome the world of Rome that they were in. Jesus, the Messiah, did not show up with a royally recognized birth or a childhood in the palace. He wasn't treated as a prince and he wasn't trained in political strategy. And all of those things might have been what you would have expected from a coming royal ruler. But everything about Jesus was greater and better than any king that had ruled on earth. Jesus knew his purpose. He knew his identity. He knew he was about to be glorified. He knew he was about to be exalted, honored, and praised. And how was that going to happen? Not through political power, but through his love. Wow. Because Jesus loves his father and he obeyed him, he suffered and died. Because Jesus loves us, he bore our sin. Jesus was exalted. Jesus was glorified through his death. And he did it because of his love, his love for his father and his love for us. So the son of man was glorified by his death. And throughout his message that we have studied, we've seen that he explained many things about his death. Number one, it was the ultimate example of love. And the basis of his new commandment to us to love one another as he loved us. Number two, Jesus' death prepared the way for us to enter the presence of God. That's the place that he prepared. The place is the presence of God. The place is our eternal home, but our eternal home is in the presence of God. And Jesus prepared the way for us to get into that place, into the presence of our holy God. Number three, his death, resurrection, and ascension made the way for God the Father to send the Holy Spirit. So these are some ways that Jesus was glorified by his death. After his opening declaration, he explained a few more things. As much as he knew the disciples could understand at that time, and they had trouble, as you know, understanding a lot of what he was saying. Lots of questions came up throughout Jesus' message to them. When Jesus announced that he was going to his father, I'm going to the father. That was a euphemism for his death. Do you remember that? He comforted his disciples by telling them he would not leave them alone. He's going away, but he's not going to leave them alone. How would he do that? That's when he started talking about his instructions about the Holy Spirit. So the one, another thing that we've learned about is not a thing. It's a person. He's a person, the Holy Spirit. 
We have learned that when Jesus went away, it was to our advantage. It's hard to comprehend that, but that is true. It was better for him to go away because when he went away, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell everyone who believes in him. Number two, the Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven and he is the spirit of Jesus and he is the spirit of the father. Number three, the Holy Spirit is God. He is a he. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is a person, meaning he has personhood. He has a mind and will and emotions. He interacts with us. We interact with him. He also has the same attributes that God has. We also looked at a list of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to us. And you have, hopefully somewhere in your papers, a list of 27 different ministries of the Holy Spirit to us, His work in us. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we now have an intimate union with God the Father and God the Son as they abide in us. So... Jesus said he and the father would come and make their home in us, abiding in us. And they do that by the Holy Spirit. Now we have the privilege of a two-way relationship. Jesus abides in us by his Holy Spirit and we abide in him by faith. Jesus is the true vine and we are the branches. As we abide in him. Devoted and completely dependent on him, he produces much fruit. Jesus produces the fruit through the Holy Spirit through us. So we can say the Holy Spirit produces fruit through us. What kind of fruit are we bearing? We are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. This is the will of God the Father, and he is the vine dresser. And I hope that you have learned how magnificent that is. He's the owner. He's rich and wealthy. He's got the plan. God, the vine dresser. It's wonderful to remember him with that description. We learned that when we accept Jesus as our savior, we receive the Holy Spirit. He moves in and he says, I'm here to help. And I am here to stay. Holy Spirit is not moving out. Not going to forsake you. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you or forsake you. We desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit because when Jesus gave his final message, he gave the disciples good news and he didn't shy away from the bad news. But let's get the good news first. Our relationship with Jesus has been elevated to the wonderful category of being friends with him. Friends with Jesus. It's not just a nice thing that Jesus said. He calls us friends because he's treated us as friends. He has talked to us as friends. He has given us information. What the Father wanted us to know, Jesus has shared with us as friends. Because we are friends of Jesus, there's bad news. That doesn't seem like that would make sense, but there is bad news. Since we're friends with Jesus, the world treats us the way it treated him, with hatred and rejection. 
And we're not supposed to be surprised by this. We've reviewed this. It still might caught us off, catch us off guard sometimes. But with a moment of reflection, you'll remember being friends with Jesus means you will be treated the way that he was. There's more good news than bad news. Hooray. <laughs> when we went, when, when Jesus went away to God, he opened up free access for us to God the Father. Because of who Jesus is and what he did, there is this thing called prayer that was new now. We have open access, free access to God the Father. We have learned that because of who Jesus is and what he did, we can ask for anything according to his word and his will, and he will do it. We've been told to ask and receive so that our joy will be full. So associate joy with prayer. That's great. We also learned that when we pray in the name of Jesus, what that should mean to us and should help us even as we pray is we want to pray based on who Jesus is and what will honor him. And we also learned that a great way to pray is to ask ourselves, what would Jesus pray? When Jesus talked about prayer, he wasn't adding one more thing to a to-do list. He was talking about prayer because it's an aspect of our intimate relationship with him, with God the Father. Prayer is about our relationship. Everything that Jesus talked about was related to the intimate union that he has with his Father and that we have with the Father because of all that Jesus has done. So on reflection, I would sum up the whole message of Jesus to his disciples as being about relationship. One word sums up John 14, 15, 16, relationship. Of course, I like the word abide, and that word also indicates relationship. So if you wanted to attach that word to it, you could, but understand. Jesus talked about his loving relationship with his father, he talked about his love for us. He talked about our love for him. He talked about his permanent relationship with us, which was made possible by his death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. I have to say them all. His death, resurrection, ascension, and, and Pentecost, sending of the Holy Spirit. And that's a brief review of these things that Jesus has spoken to us in his last message. And that brings us again to his last statement in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. All of these things were declared by Jesus so that we would have peace in him, in the world. And when he gave us this last sentence, he showed us a very clear contrast between what he gives and what the world gives. And you can see them now side by side in me versus in the world. You may have, and I'm going to come back to that, but in the world you will have. And in Jesus, you may have peace and in the world you'll have tribulation. Living in the world as a friend of Jesus is not easy. 
It's guaranteed that we will have tribulation. Jesus didn't shy away from telling us that the world is in the hands of the evil ruler. That's John 16, 11. The world does not love Jesus. John 14, 24. The world hates the Father and the Son. All of that is very harsh. It's worse than harsh. It's horrible. The world hates God and the world hates God's people. They hate everything that God wants and his way and his truth. They hate everything about him. Because of this hatred of God and the sin nature that every person is born with, every person on earth will have trouble, tribulation, suffering. It's guaranteed to every single human being. Every single tribe and tongue, nationality, no matter where you live, rich or poor, all over the world, every person will have tribulation. And you can see that. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Well, how do you have peace? He said, those who belong to Jesus, in me, you may have peace. So when he said, you may have peace, that applies to those who have received him, who are in him. Now, when you are in him, you definitely can have peace. You can see the difference. There's some that are in Christ and they're going to have peace. And then those who are not are going to keep fighting and fight against those who are in Christ. You may have peace if you belong to Jesus. And he said this in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He concluded his, he started promising peace and he concluded promising peace. A preacher who has spoken at our church, whose name is H.B. Charles, has a video entitled 50 Practical Tips for Preaching in 15 minutes. So he flies through 50 tips. And one of his tips to preachers is only conclude your sermon once. And he gives the example of land the plane and land it well. Don't go circling around the runway. That's the last thing you want. Are, are they done? Are they done? Jesus was the best teacher, speaker, preacher. And we have an example of a fantastic conclusion by Jesus in John 16:33. I'm only halfway through my talk, so this is not my conclusion. So I'm not circling the runway. But we're looking at Jesus' conclusion, which was full, it was loaded, and is amazing. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have read this verse Many times now as I've handled these chapters and studied it with you and thought about it. And even as I was just reading it again, I realized I overlooked a very important little word. The conjunction, but, is a special word in this Greek sentence. There is normally a common little two-letter Greek word, uh, D-E, de. That's not the one used here. Allah is the Greek word. And 
It is used to present a strong contrast between statements. And in this verse, it brings up a surprise. So we have a surprising contrast. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Now, imagine listening to Jesus. He says to the disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. And the disciples might have thought, oh, no. And they're like going to get discouraged. Like, I thought he was I'm mean, like, oh, no. He's telling us about the hatred of the world again. He's telling us we're going to be troubled and sorrowful. He's already brought this up. He's reminding us. He's, oh, no. We heard you. Okay, we heard you. We know it's not going to be good. And then they hear Jesus say, but be of good cheer. What? Like, were they hanging their heads and then their heads popped up and their eyes are open in amazement? You don't have good cheer in the midst of tribulation and suffering and sorrow. They don't go together. But Jesus showed this contrast. The phrase, be of good cheer, as you know, can be translated, be courageous. And we love that aspect of it. Take heart, take courage. Take courage and have this positive outlook that your courage is going to have a positive outcome. I like how be of good, when you understand be of good cheer and take courage and take heart, it's all positive. So Jesus told them exactly why to be of good cheer. He did not leave his disciples staring in shock at his words. He said, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Now we're going to reflect for a moment. Just remember on what Jesus said and did in his last days and hours on earth, how he did it. Not all the actions, but how he did it. Before Jesus' death, he was strong. He was courageous. He was obedient to the Father. He was certain of his victory. And you can hear that that is communicated throughout this whole message and throughout his last words, the very last words in this verse. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew God's purpose for his life and death. Jesus himself was courageous because he knew he was going to overcome the world. There was no doubt that he would win the eternal cosmic war over sin and death and Satan. No doubt. Certain victory. Armies can say they're assured of victory, but they're not assured until they have accomplished it. Jesus knew that his victory was going to happen before he walked through all the steps of his conquering actions. Because Jesus was courageous and victorious, we too can be. We're doing it. We're courageous and victorious because Jesus has overcome the world. I am so glad that I am on his winning team, his victorious side. I am relieved. I am humbled. I am thankful that I have been rescued by him.
rescued from the power of darkness, rescued from an enemy that I could not conquer and none of y'all could help me and fight with me to conquer and I couldn't help you. We could not do it for each other, but Jesus did it for us. Let's rejoice in the victory of Jesus described in these following verses. In John 19.30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. These words out of Jesus' mouth are the fullest statement of completion in all of eternity. Just think of it. He did it all. It was all done. Then all of the payment for our sins had been made by his death on the cross. Everything that God wanted so that his wrath would be satisfied was poured out and accomplished through Jesus' death and his suffering on the cross. Everything was done to rescue us from the power of sin through his death on the cross. How many times have you said, I'm finished, and then, oops, there's one more thing I need to fix right there. I'm finished. Oh, man, I found another glass, another plate over there. I got to go get that, wash that up. I'll say, I'm finished. I can't do any more right now. I'm going to have to come back later. And I will finish the rest of it tomorrow. Not Jesus. When he said it is finished, he meant it. Absolutely. 100% of the work was done. No other work needed to be done by Jesus to save us. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see in these verses, Jesus faced death courageously and destroyed the one who holds the power of death. I love that that clear, strong word is right there. And after his victory, he sat down as the conqueror. Paul prays that we will know God's exceedingly great, mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. This verse from Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 tells us Jesus is exalted above all. And when it's talking about principalities and powers and mights, that is very likely referring to spiritual wickedness in high places, demonic entities. Jesus is above every one of them. Paul praises God in Colossians 1, 12 and 4, through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. These verses paint a vivid picture for us. 
either think medieval times or fairy tales or whatever your imagination wants you to go to, but read these and picture what is said there. I think of being imprisoned in darkness by a powerful evil ruler, chained to the floor of a dark, damp cell in a dungeon that's surrounded by a moat in an old fortress. I can't get out. Nobody knows I'm there. Jesus destroyed the power of that evil ruler that chained me to that dungeon floor. God the Father sent Jesus to deliver us, to rescue us from the dungeon and to bring us into the light. So you can see the darkness that he rescued us from, but you can also see the beauty and the light and the kingdom that he rescued us to go into, to belong to. So Jesus rescued us and he brought us into the kingdom of the Son. He didn't bring us in as peasants, but as partakers of the inheritance of the saints. He changed us. He cleaned us up. He changed our clothes. The blood of Jesus paid the price of our redemption and bought our citizenship in heaven. And a little bit more of Jesus' victorious battle is described. You saw this in your homework, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. There's that phrase again. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know that's the enemy he's referring to. The handwriting, the handwriting of requirements written, referred to a written note of debts owed. So Jesus canceled the debt we owed, which was a debt we could never pay. He canceled our debt and he disgraced the enemy. He disarmed the enemy, stripping them of their weapons. I double checked. That is what that word means, to take their weapons away. Now that we've been rescued and we are citizens of heaven, there is no way the enemy can get us back in his clutches again. He does not have weapons against us. Our enemy is doomed And Martin Luther put it this way, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, meaning behold, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Here's one of those words. Revelation 20:10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, the deceiver, the devil, is still roaming the world. He is roaring. He wants to scare us. But his doom is sure. His doom is certain. Jesus has already won the victory over Satan, over sin, over death, over all of the evils of the world. He's finished the work. He's paid our debts. He's rescued us from darkness. 
He took away the enemy's weapons and he has overcome evil. When Jesus said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That statement was said with complete confidence. This was his confident conclusion. His statement was shocking in its boldness. He had not died yet. He hadn't done it yet, but he knew this victory was coming. Jesus was brave. He was valiant. He was unflinching as he faced the cross. He was then, he still is, our bold, daring, fearless, victorious hero. He's won it all. He's won everything. That's our Jesus. And I'm sticking with him. If you know Jesus as your savior, then you can enjoy the victory parade that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We are with the right one, the winning one. He is victorious. Jesus, our king, and he leads us in triumph. So now we know. We abide in Christ. We trust the Holy Spirit to remind us of the things that he's spoken to us so that we will have peace. In this world, we will have tribulation, but surprise, be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. And now we just get to shout hallelujah. Amen. It is true. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and celebrate your strategy and your plan and your choice of uh, the only one who could save us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and doing all the dirty work, the horrific, um, just gut-wrenching, incomprehensible suffering that you um, endured for our sake because you loved your Father and you love us. Thank you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are now with us, uh, teaching us. And we just are so thankful that we are members of your kingdom of light and right and truth and holiness. And may we just walk like it. We've heard it. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done for us. We want to live like we believe it. In your name we pray. Amen.